and you are listening to the NAB podcast. I'm Eli Kramer, and I'm with my co-host, James Anderson. And today we have our uh, friend of the show, Tommy Curry, uh, who is a leading voice in Black male studies at the University of Edinburgh. And today we continue our conversations about the state of the field, the role of Black male studies in higher education, and add to it a kind of further thinking about uh, the possibilities for transformative change both microcultures like the academy and macrocultures like our globalized society. So with that, we're going to turn to the interview. Professor Curry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start off uh, by asking about Pan-African studies in higher education, which seems to have been gaining traction in the United States as of late and perhaps globally. And I'd be curious as to what your take is on that, as well as Pan-Africanism as a movement, which also seems to be having something like a resurgence, at least that's the impression that I get. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering if, uh, in your view, what relationship does and or should Black male studies have with Pan-African studies and or Pan-Africanism generally? Yeah, well, I think the resurgence of, of Pan-Africanism really comes on the back of understanding that there are similarities in the Black condition across the world, right? Like we've consistently pointed to the African diaspora as a cultural resource. Um, but when you see certain structural manifestations of poverty, police brutality, state violence, uh, and then of course the subjugation of groups of people uh, in mass by white populations, you know, throughout Africa and even Europe, uh, I think Pan-Africanism, you know, speaks to the historical parallels and continuity of that sort of oppression. Um, it really highlights the materiality of anti-Blackness, both as a concept and as a sociological practice. Uh, I think Black male studies is certainly related to Pan-African thought uh, in the sense that we're looking for uh, repetitive and if not uh, replicating structures of anti-Black misandry. So we're looking at how white societies, particularly or in neo-colonial societies, um, black men are going to be peculiarly targeted by things like police violence, like things like white white vigilantism, or of course, even as my word points out, sexual victimization and brutalization um, at the hands of whites and other groups, uh, other people in their communities or neighborhoods. Uh, so what I think ends up happening is that black male studies is trying to highlight a particular uh, vulnerability that black men have um, that we all know quite well, but refuse to actually identify and study. So when you're looking at racist societies, be it the United States, South Africa, et cetera, when we're talking about the group that gets the brunt of state violence, murder, uh, and social disadvantage, you're talking about racialized, specifically Black men. Uh, we see that in the United States. You, who has the lowest life expectancy? Black men. Who's most incarcerated? Black men, right? The list goes on and on and on. Uh, so I think Black male studies is trying to uh, contribute to Pan-Africanism by saying that globally, within every kind of anti-Black uh, society that we're actually trying to protest, you will find this kind of subjugation and marginalization, marginalization of the Black male. And to kind of follow up on this discussion of the role of Black male studies with movements, uh, do you think the existing Black male studies literature overall, in your assessment, uh, emphasize structure uh, or agency more? or some mix, if one has tended to be emphasized over another? And would you like to see the emphasis regarding structure and agency shift at all or remain the same? 
Well, I think I think this is a really interesting question. Um, as you know, my work makes a distinction between black male studies and black masculinity studies. I think when you're looking at black masculinity studies, which is an offshoot of feminism and black feminist thought, um, that holds black men as kind of pathological, patriarchal, and sexist, there's an overwhelming emphasis on agency, right? Choosing to be the new black man, in, in Mark Anthony Neal's words, right? Um, black male studies scholars generally think that's nonsense, right? Because black male studies scholars are saying, well, look, when you look at the conditions of any group of people put in the same position that black men have throughout a society, you're going to see the same kinds of behaviors, the same kind of uh, mental dispositions, the same kind of disadvantage. Um, what I think the black male studies literature that exists or the newly emergent black male studies literature that exists is going to emphasize structure, right? It's going to emphasize that continuity. Um, I don't know if I necessarily want to see the shift as of yet, because I don't think we have a very firm handle um, within the academy on notions of misandric aggression. Uh, no other scholar, no other field has tried to or even attempted to answer the question of why is it that racial violence, the most lethal kinds of violence that we see within societies and across the world in forms of genocide, target racialized men, right? And that's my research question, uh, regardless of what we're talking about. If you're talking about the genocide, or you're talking about lynchings, or you're talking about police brutality, why is it that racialized men are the ones that are predominantly and disproportionately affected by that kind of violence, right? Now, the second question from that, of course, becomes something like, well, why do we all only see that kind of violence, even when we don't attend to it, and neglect other things like sexual violence and rape against these groups of men? Um, so yeah, I think black male studies is overwhelmingly on structure. And I think after we've kind of identified the societal processes and the various kinds of disciplinary uh, obstacles to recognizing this aspect or this phenomenon within society, then we'll of course get to agency. Um, but I think that it's premature to assert that certain groups of people or certain individuals have agency um, and could behave a certain way if they change values or if they did X or Y without recognizing the very real obstacles that these individuals and groups have in various societies across the world to realizing personhood, much less uh, individuality and agency. Professor Curry, I, I know that you've participated on uh, panels or, or been in discussion with Professor Joy James in the past. Yeah. And I know she's uh, real adamant about recovering uh, the history of uh, black resistance. And so, and so I'm wondering uh, how you look at that from the vantage point of black male studies, if you think that has been um, undervalued or neglected as well, or, or if you think that before the uh, a real um, generative discussion on resistance is even possible, uh, that some of the things that you alluded to also have to be foregrounded. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I certainly think the latter. I think that the things that we've talked about in terms of black resistance in history has to be uh, foregrounded and articulated differently. And I'll give you very, you know, in the first chapter of my book, I raised this issue where, you know, in, in black feminist historiography, the assumption is that every black man from, 19, from 1865 forward was only trying to gain manhood. You know, and there's a there's a conversation that's not even had about how black women va value both manhood and womanhood. Right. These are black people who are trying to move through 
the evolutionary scale set in motion by white supremacist pseudoscience. And they're to a large part adopting the same kind of metrics. So they wanted to see divisions between men and women. They wanted pure and chaste womanhood. They wanted masculine and protective manhood. So what ends up happening is we say, well, all the resistance, the American um, Negro Academy, the you know Atlanta Sociological Laboratory, the push for black nationalism, the Afro-American League, all in the late 1800s, these were all institutions to try to help black men secure patriarchal grounding. Um, even when you look at the historian's uh, work, uh, you know, people like Martha Jones, she's very clear that black men were inclusive of black women, that they have very different views than white men did on issues of suffrage. Uh, but that hasn't been enough to kind of, you know, turn the tide of how we explain black men's political motivations or the impetus they had for forming certain organizations. Black male study says we need a completely new historiography, that we can't just take one ideological frame, which is black men fought for manhood, and make that um, equate that to things like patriarchy and sexism. You know, and throughout the text, I point out things like, well, look, on the one hand, you know, black men, you know, through black male burden organizations um, were adamantly against imperialism, right? Now, you certainly had some black men like, you know, Alexander Cromwell that supported, but you had other people like Du Bois, you know, like Hubert Harrison that absolutely um, detested the idea of imperialism. So how is it both and, right? So the idea is that they supported patriarchy, but they were against imperialism. But we usually think of imperialism as an outstretch of patriarchy, right? Even white feminists like Charlotte Gilman suggested that patriarchy only reaches its apex when it's globalized, you know? So you have black men that's rejecting the white man's burden. They didn't propose a black man's burden to take over the world, or many did not. Um, but we don't see that kind of nuance. We don't see that separation and distance. So I think, you know, I, I, I'm a fan of uh, Joy James's work. I think that resistance traditions are important, but I think we have to have the right internal lens and the different kinds of frames to actually read them. If we're reducing everything from, uh, you know, black men who are fighting for the right to vote, uh, all the way to the black power movement, uh, and even BLM today, to black men only fight for patriarchy, which is the routine mantra that you get from black feminists, scholars, and political commentators, uh, you're not getting any analysis of what actually motivated black men. You're just, you're just feeding the kind of, you know, pop culture uh, ideologues regarding what they think black men are. But when you're looking at something like the Haitian Revolution, when you're looking at, you know, the, the, the tomes that are being written by Frederick Douglass, when you're looking at black men support women's rights to vote, even though white women wanted uh, to vote them back into slavery, you know, when you're looking at black men's political attitudes and how um, amazingly progressive they are compared to not only white peoples, but also black women. These are, this is not the kinds of uh, historical and sociological indicators that tell us that resistance traditions amongst black males are purely and solely driven by patriarchal power. So I think we need to revisit, we need to uh, reinterpret, and we need to reground how we're actually thinking about a lot of these subjects that have largely been formulated on the most superficial readings of black history by books like, uh, you know, from, from authors like Bell Hooks, for instance. And Professor Curry, you recently participated in a webinar discussion with Dr. William Smith, transitioning from anti-Blackness to pro-Blackness, a conversation that was sponsored by some Southern California community colleges, including Riverside City College, where I teach. And so I got the chance to uh, sit in and, and check out that webinar and really appreciated it. And during that discussion, uh, you all grappled with the problems of coalitional logics with respect yes. to challenging anti-Blackness. And during the discussion, someone raised the point, it might have been you, uh, you, you might remember, that uh, while people are arguing about, well, who do we form coalitions with, 
well, black men and boys are being murdered and coalitional logics were cited as one of the seeming failures of the civil rights movement to the United States. And then I was just thinking about this in relation to, you know, we're, we're recording this on uh, December 10th, just a few years after the 51st anniversary of the assassination of Fred Hampton, who was the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, who was executed in his sleep on December 4th, 1969, by the Chicago police working in coordination with the FBI. And Hamptons and the Black Panthers, too, for that matter, have received, I think, uh, renewed attention as of late. Obviously, there was the Marvel comic movie, which kind of reignited interest. And then we've recently had the uh, Aaron Sorkin's Netflix movie, The Trial of Chicago 7. And there's a Fred Hampton cameo. Interestingly enough, I guess Sorkin didn't talk to Fred Hampton Jr. in making that film, nor Bobby Seale, even though Bobby Seale's still alive and actually played a pivotal role. Um in in the the trial uh, until he, he was removed and was part of the film uh, but there's also the the new film that's coming out judas and the black messiah featuring i think uh lakeith stanfield who was in boots riley's film sorry to bother you and for that uh, i guess the director did speak with uh fred hampton jr and, and I, th I think it, it looks really interesting and it's probably going to reveal history to young folks who probably otherwise would be unfamiliar with it and fred hampton of course famous for advocating for a rainbow coalition to help and infighting disputes among various political organizations and ethnic groups in the Chicagoland area, primarily with the aim of promoting a kind of shared struggle against racism and capitalism and imperialism, which the Panthers often understood as being inextricably linked. And then later, you know, Jesse Jackson borrowed the concept. Some would maybe say he co-opted it, but arguably I was thinking there, there probably hasn't been uh there probably haven't haven't been thoroughgoing efforts at coalition building for widespread social transformation in the United States in the last half century on par with what Hampton was trying to do. And so I wondered if you consider that kind of Hampt Fred Hampton style coalition building as a useful praxis for contesting anti-blackness today, or if you consider efforts at building something like a rainbow coalition inappropriate or ineffective in our current historical conjuncture. Yeah, I don't think it works in our current uh, historical moment because you have so much neoliberalism and, you know, kind of endemic or culturally sown anti-Blackness that you're not getting Black men um, depicted as possible coalitional partners, right? Remember, much of the literature that's coming out of intersectionality in the 1980s and even in the work of people like Mary Matsuda uh, is that they want to, coalitional politics are set against the idea of, uh, you know, another Black messiah. Uh, and in this world, the Black messiah is articulated by intersectional theorists, at least in the, uh, you know, the formative years of their literature, was that this was, you know, kind of the Black male, right? The Black male leader um, that's, that's kind of taken a stand or the, or the Black male revolutionary. Now, that's, it, I think it's one thing to say that this is, that's a failed political model, um, but the coalitional politics that we're seeing rise under intersectional discourse today um, has done nothing to improve the conditions of Black men in the United States, uh, despite using their dead bodies as kind of the fuel for their, for their political, um, you know, platforms and their, and their ideological and rhetorical posture uh, as being pro-Black. And I want to be clear here. I mean, when you're looking at something like BLM, uh, which overwhelmingly has corporate sponsors, white liberal backers um, as part of the Democratic national platform, or at least an advocate of it um, in public, uh, you know, these, these are people who are receiving money, uh, book deals, you know, TV deals, et cetera, uh, while the corpses of black men and boys still pile up. 
So I, I'm largely unsympathetic to the idea of coalitions in that sense, uh, where we're looking at, you know, various groups, be it white liberals, uh, various sexual orientations, et cetera, um, that are trying to launch a cause for their political rights, their visibility, et cetera, um, off the backs of black men and boys. Now, that is not to be misunderstood as I think that black men and boys are fundamentally separate from those issues, right? I think that when I'm talking about black men, um, we're talking about gay black men, we're talking about straight black men, we're talking about trans black men, et cetera. But the question is, who's invested in those bodies? Who's invested in preventing those deaths? What I see right now is the dead black boy or the dead black male uh, body is used as the poster child for organizing certain kind of political efforts that awfully don't benefit that group. So you can talk about the founders of BLM all day, but they're not they're not members of the groups that are dis, most the most disproportionately affected by police killings and mass incarceration in the United States. That burden falls to black men and boys. So while while you have all kind of conversations that have these very general approaches, we're against mass incarceration, we're against police brutality, um, there is no one asking and trying to reconfigure the kinds of value or the are are the 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 worth that the lives of black men and boys have. And part of the reason that you have such um, disparate numbers between black men and black women who are killed every year uh, by the police is precisely because black men are more associated with deviance. They're more associated with, with sexual violence and rape. Um, they're, they're far more associated with criminality than their black female counterpart. So that means that the level of dehumanization that black males suffer in the United States is something that we still don't want to deal with. We don't want to try to fix that problem. So when you're talking about coalitional politics, the question I'm asking is, well, who has the mindset? Who has the kind of racial consciousness necessary to be able to not only accept and work with black men and boys, but develop coalitional politics and postures that are going to rehumanize black men and boys. Because the current literature is the current activist spaces that we have both in the academy and out in, in the real world um, identify black men, particularly straight black men, um, as terrors. Right, the the literature that's coming from that side is identifying them as white, the white men of the black race because of disproportionate rates of domestic violence perpetration. They're saying that because of sexual violence that these groups are dangerous and can't work with other uh, women or LGBT groups, et cetera. And then you look you look at that, and the data doesn't say that. The data says yes, there is a disproportionate amount of perpetration, but there's also a disproportionate amount of victimization. So when you're looking at black same-sex couples, high levels of perpetration of violence. We're looking at black female couples, high levels of perpetration against spouses and children children, right? But none of that breaks their coalitional posture and politics. Said differently, no amount of violence that's committed by any other group of Black people um, seems to make national news or become an obstacle to working with other groups unless they're Black men. So you have Black women, you have uh, Black same-sex couples that have disproportionate rates of domestic violence and sexual violence amongst them, um, but that doesn't matter. Allegedly, they can still be intersectional. Black men have the exact same problem that every other member in their society and communities have. Suddenly, it's because of patriarchy, sexism, misogyny, and they're dangerous. Uh, so yes, I think coalitional politics is a failure. I think that it, uh, in many ways, perpetuates and proliferates certain negative stereotypes and ideas of Black men that can't be proven uh, in the sociological literature or any of the clinical studies that we have on things like domestic violence and sexual violence in the United States. Um, and I think often that uh, coalitional logics uh, allows Black men to be scapegoated that we say that the reason that certain pro political programs fell in the United States um, is not because they're badly organized or because they depend on white liberal support, but also is because of black men. Uh, it's offensive to think in a world 
that's situated by feminist ideology and politics, where standpoint epistemology is one of the great contributions of, of, of feminist um, philosophical and, and political literature, right? That the group that experiences the oppression has the tools and resources to solve that oppression. That in a world that is so committed to the oppression and vulnerability of black men and boys, their incarceration, murder, et cetera, that we're literally having a movement saying that black men and boys are not able to lead or even participate as meaningful voices about their own death. I find that to be immoral and, and, and absolutely uh, intellectually and ethically repugnant given the kinds of uh, platforms and, and, and standards or uh, you know, notions of knowledge or political theory that people are have been advocating for the past two decades. Uh, to build on uh, some of the questions raised above, in particular, to think about uh, this academic dimension and perhaps a, a different part of it. Uh, given that Black scholars have been overrepresented amongst the ranks of contingent faculty who uh, work off the tenure track, as the AUP has documented, do you view cross-racial multicultural uh, coalition building as helpful or unhelpful when it comes to challenge racism and arguably a racist and sexist two-tier system in higher education? Can or does Black male studies throw any light on the subject as far as... I I think black male studies certainly show, shines light on the subject, right? Because black male studies is concerned with all racialized men. So I think it asks serious questions about indigenous men, about Latinos, and of course about black men in relationship to contingency faculty, our contingent faculty, and even um, you know the the smaller number of, of those groups on on tenure tracks, you know, at Title IV institutions. Um, the question of coalitions, though, I think I think is up in the air, you know. I'm critical of coalitional politics under an intersectional mode. Does that mean that we can't have coalitions amongst groups that are recognizing certain items, agendas, or structures? Absolutely not, right? So I think I think that if we're talking about um, something like faculty in the university system, um, then there's there's a possibility. Uh, if, of course, if it's evidence-based, right? So we're talking about the actual disparities that we see in tenure track lines and in contingency faculty, and of course, in the graduate student to professor pipeline, that I think if you're being honest you and looking at evidence, you have to talk about black and brown men, right? Um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be talking about black and brown women, but there's a more disproportionate proportionate effect on the marginalization and weeding out of, of, of racialized males in the US Academy than there are for women. Um, what does that coalition look like? I don't know, right? I mean, what? I don't know of any coalitions that exist right now where there's a mad, uh, a mass support or mass support for the reintroduction or the the, the affirmative affirmative action towards racialized males specifically. Um, and I think that's a conversation that needs to be had and needs to be talked about. Uh, without that kind of brute reality. Uh, or, or grounding, uh, I don't know what the coalitional politics would be. If you mean coalitions as a mechanism to deal with those kinds of priorities once they're set and identified through various um, evidence-based approaches, then sure, I think that is one possible strategy. Uh, but I also think that the respective groups are going to have, have to advocate for themselves. I think there's a need for Black men and Brown men, Black women, Brown women, et cetera, to make claims about their positionality in structures like the U.S. Academy um, and why their particular needs are being met or not met or why why there are different experiences of voices should be heard. I don't think there's a trade-off. I think if Black women have specific experiences in the academy, 
they should voice that and that should get attention. I think that if black men have different experiences and they're more disproportionate underrepresented than black women, that we need to hear that too. I think what's happened is we've identified a certain kind of coalitional logics with a supremacy of one voice, despite having multiple voices. So when you come to an intersectional coalition, there is only one stigma. There's or, or, I'm not sorry, not stigma. There's only one position or platform that everyone's supposed to advocate for. You identify the group or several groups that are the most depressed, and you claim that that's who you're fighting for. Um, but as I've asked people multiple times, when you look at the data, you're not getting the same kinds of um, you're not getting your assumptions proven. You're not going to find black women on the bottom in every situation. You're not going to find black lesbians or black gay couples or, or groups of peoples uh, at the same level of, of disadvantage in every situation. In many cases, you're going to find black men um, that do worse than those groups in certain in certain contexts. And what I don't see are people willing and able to say, oh, well, in this case, since black men do worse, let's invest some of our resources in that group. I see the opposite effect. I see people trying to explain a way why we shouldn't recruit more black and brown men. So in the academy, you see this all the time. You know, I, I used to be at a university where there was a fight to hire black men every time. You know, somehow black men it became exponentially represented, even though there's practically no black men there. There's always an excuse, well, we, we should hire a black woman, we should hire a Latina over a black male who is amply qualified. There'll be no argument as to the qualifications. Rarely did we ever have arguments about the qualifications of black male candidates. Well, the issue was, should we, ever, should we invest in hiring a black male? Uh, and I think that if we're talking about the academy specifically, and we're talking about coalitions, then we're going to have to talk about people seeing and admitting that this kind of misandric orientation, that this weeding out, this punishing of black men um, in both, both in on the job market and in actual interviews uh, is something that we that that needs to be encountered and something that needs to be reacted against. Uh, I'm curious. We've talked a little bit about some of the particular kinds of. Uh, uh, you already mentioned some of the kind of issues that uh, black men face in getting hired and their research being accepted and you know uh, them actually being in kind of safe positions in the academy. Um, but I was also wondering if. Uh, you see now that you're uh, in the UK at Edinburgh, if you're starting to see any distinctions between the kinds of issues that emerge that are peculiar to the US Academy versus kind of pan-African issues about the diaspora. And if, you're, if there's uh, any of those that have become striking in your kind of, uh, I don't know, as you've been in a, outside the US a little bit longer. Um, what do you mean in the UK institutions, or do I just see things differently? Yeah, the UK from... institutions, I think, would be okay to particularly focus on. Yeah, and maybe just yeah. any contrast that have been just outside of the US now a little longer in UK institutions, if anything striking about the US has uh, come along as well. Well, I'll start here. I, th I think being outside the US, I'm, I'm more attuned to how many of the research programs we've adopted um, you know, in Black philosophy or Black studies are reactionary, right? They're reacting to a certain program and assumption of, of positions um, or cognitive frames that white people or white liberals hold in the U.S. society. In the U.K., there's practically no diversity. So I, I am the only Black male that I've run across, <laughs> you know, for quite some time, you know, in Scotland. Um, so I think the issues are different. I think the U.K. still has a system where it manages populations and the people who run that managerial system are, are all white men and women. Um, I think in the United States, you have a more significant population of black people in, in various academies, but that means that there's different segregational logics and motifs to make sure that certain groups of people uh, don't, don't pass the, the glass ceiling, so to speak, 
or the concrete concrete floor. Uh, so in the U.S., you'll have you know black men in the academy. They're going to be much less than their female counterparts or whites or other groups. Um, but only certain kind of black men are rewarded. So you don't have a diversity of opinion once you get at the top R ones in the Ivy Leagues. Those are going to be very much reformist, very much liberal. There's not going to be a lot of radical thought there. Um, in the UK, I think that there's more opportunity for radical thought because the situation is so white that, you know, people are looking to promote different voices, different ideas and see how they pan out. Um, I think on the flip side in the UK, uh, because this is a newly emerging conversation, there's a lot of people who are just having the conversation that don't have the kind of training in understanding racism or different kinds of scholarship that you receive in the United States. I think that they're behind in, in a certain regard there. Um, but you know, I think I think the white people in the UK and the US are somewhat different. Uh, I think the elitism and the classism in the UK um, allows racism to become pushed to the background. So people often don't speak about racism, racism and hardly ever speak of anti-blackness uh, in the UK. These are new terms. These are newly emergent conversations. Whereas in the United States, people talk about this all the time, but very rarely do you have from theorists a serious engagement with material reality. So very few theorists are talking about poverty. Very few theorists are talking about, um, you know, various forms of economic stratification. Um, you know, history doesn't, you know, history becomes something that you can invent now throughout the liberal arts. There's very little evidence-based analysis. So I think that the, the, the predominance of racial discourse in the United States has pushed a certain kind of understanding of racism as being material and sociological uh, out, of the, out of the limelight and move largely to discursive analysis. Whereas in the UK, because it's a new conversation, evidence-based reasoning, a certain form of empiricism is often welcomed um, alongside of philosophical and theoretical innovation and analysis. Professor Curry, apologies because we're kind of all over the place with our questions here. No, but... not, not a problem. I wanted to return to the transitioning from anti-blackness to pro-blackness webinar discussion that you participated in because yes. I, I wanted to engage with it uh, as, as much as I, I could. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, James, you're going to learn something. And also I knew that we had this interview coming up and I'm like, surely uh, Professor Curry is going to say something that you can uh, kind of draw from to try to come up with a halfway decent question. And so <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I tried to do. And so in, in that discussion, you referenced Dr. Huey P. Newton and his thoughts on revolutionary suicide in relation to hope. And maybe you could expound upon that in a moment. But before you do, I was also thinking, well, you know, the discussion broached uh, the issue as to why nationhood is now largely absent from Black-centered discourse as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, notably, I was thinking about Newton's intellectual work, and there's actually been a resurgence in interest in that, too. I would attribute some of that to the work of uh, Delio Vasquez, who uh, wrote his dissertation on Newton at the University of California, Santa Cruz, in the History of Consciousness program. I think he's an assistant professor at NYU now. Um, at, at any rate, he, he uh, helped popularize Newton's theory of revolutionary intercommunalism, which I'm going to uh, mm -hmm. touch on in, in a moment. Uh, but it, it's worth noting that Newton's intellectual work has been largely neglected, especially inside the academy, but also uh, outside, uh, despite his role as being the primary theoretician for the Black Panther Party, and despite his breadth of knowledge of everything, essentially philosophy, history, political economy, social theory. And just to share a, a, a bit of that with our listeners, hopefully as a springboard for further discussion, um, I, I thought it was worth maybe pointing out the role that Newton played in moving the Black Panther Party from 
a position of nationalism circa 1966 to a kind of revolutionary nationalism to a form of internationalism to then what he turned revolutionary intercommunalism. And he favored the latter, uh, at least in the United States, because in his view, the U.S. was no longer um, a nation, but instead operated as an empire controlling the globe, uh, what, what he referred to as the situation of reactionary intercommunalism, uh, this, this um, situation of um, imperially dispersed communities. And so we came to view decolonization in the sense of trying to recuperate past conditions of nationhood as impossible going forward for, for peoples throughout the world, given that imperial dispersion of the world into the dispersed collection of communities, subject to, as he put it, the control of a small circle of administrators uh, uh, that, that administrators and that administers and profits from the empire of the United States. And so I'm wondering, in your view, how relevant is Newton's theory and philosophy from his thoughts on revolutionary suicide that you mentioned in the webinar to his intercommunalist theory when it comes to, say, transitioning from anti-Blackness to pro-Blackness today? And then in a similar vein, do you have any thoughts on how Black nationalism, as well as perhaps nationalism more generally, or internationalism or intercommunalism or what have you, ought to be studied, contextualized, and theorized in higher education and you know, given you know, your field of study in, in Black male studies in particular? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Newton. You know, I taught, I taught him uh, this semester. Uh, in my decolonialism class. Uh, I think that his analysis, you know, of course, largely depends on dialectics, but I think that it, it gives us a different view of how we read Black nationalism. I mean, for many people, Black nationalism is a reactive, um, you know, political program and mostly rhetorical, um, and they don't really see the kind of nuance that Newton had both of time, his, his ideas of phenomenological experience, right, in his essay, The Mind is Flesh, uh, or even how he's looking at intercommunalism. You know, as you say, you know, people really do see him as being stuck in nationalism, where his last writings are on, on revolutionary intercommunalism are talking much more about the ways that people are operating from ideological structures and communities rather than nation state politics and boundaries, right? Um, that being said, I think the contribution he makes uh, to black male studies is is kind of two or threefold. Um, I think the first thing he gets right in re revolutionary suicide is the way that sociological conditions lead to certain forms of behavior. Uh, I think that this is a precursor, of course, to the sociogenetic principle that people like Sylvia Winter have explored, the ways that consciousness is formulated by the outside environment and how that it becomes internalized and interiorized into people's actions and behaviors. Now, of course, Newton is drawing from Durkheim, um, but he's but he's he's given us the rubrics of how societal maladjustment um creates the the basis and formulations um for internalized self-hatred and destruction, right? So I think that's really, really important. Um I think the second thing that's important about Newton is of course uh to black male studies is his his accounts of eschatology. Um he thinks that societal transformation against overwhelming odds like empires or states um have to be driven by a certain kind of faith or belief in chance. And he articulates that not really through, you know, this kind of optimism, but rather a notion of effort, that there are unforeseen and unperceivable consequences of, of individual and group effort that somehow resonates throughout history, if not, you know, um, divinity. So when he gives you the account of the Golden Mountain at the end of Revolutionary Suicide and says for generation upon generation, you had, you know, different 
groups of people, farmers, children trying to, you know, dig through and, and lift the mountain. And one day an angel comes down and lifts it for them. Um, I think that's how he understands the overall program of societal change from one system of being into another system of being, right? An apocryphal shift. Now, this, th I think, has a third implication, uh, which very much goes through his intercommunalism. Um, Newton wants us to believe that a revolutionary intercommunalism can be a joining and re-socialization of the world um, against capitalist interest. Now, one of the things he thinks happens because of this is ultimately we get to a universal community because the dialectic will keep chipping away difference because at the end of it, he thinks that if we still have racism or racialism, that that will never breed conflict. Um, I don't know whether or not I agree with that idea. I think that the kinds of conflicts that are being described by Newton, not only a revolutionary suicide in his interviews on, on intercommunalism, but uh, also in his, um, you know, his, his, more, his more concrete articulations of revolutionary suicide, um, he understands that the police and that societies target racialized men. He understands that revolutionary parties made of men are going to be exiled, murdered, and made examples of. He's going to understand that many of the motifs that he sees as breeding the kind of, you know, dialectical resistance to empire are going to target men. Um, but despite him describing those instances throughout his work, he doesn't stop and analyze them, right? Because he doesn't have a language outside of Marxism, really, at this point of his life, uh, to talk about those disconnections. And while the war against the Panthers certainly gives him or shows off a more theoretical sophistication in how he's explaining state violence and civility, and even the apparatus of, of misinformation programs cut by the FBI, um, the death of black people falls to the background to how he sees a modern, uh, uh, a modern and advancing technological apparatus used to discourage mass resistance and revolution. Uh, so I think black male studies then breaks with Newton in a certain sense, but it certainly builds upon his insights because it's suggesting that the populations that are going to be, that are going to be exterminated uh, during these kinds of dialectical processes, during these conflicts are going to be racialized men, right? And I think that Newton certainly has an eye to that because that's why he talks about the expansion of the now, right? The reason that revolutionaries understand that, you know, well, this is really George Jackson, but revolutionaries understand that revolutionary life is filled with coffin, coffins and funerals, um, not celebrations and reform. Um, you know, I think that that describes a certain kind of existential moment that Black men have been resonating in um, throughout their time in history in the United States. Uh, it's not a coincidence that people like Newton and George Jackson um, are reflected upon death and their relationship with police and, and funerals and losing people, because that's very much part of a Black male experience in the United States. So even though he doesn't understand the specific societal mechanisms that black male studies scholars would talk about embracing misandric aggression, arbitrary set discrimination, et cetera. Um, he has certainly given us a firsthand account of how he rationalizes that through a kind of Marxism and uh, dialectical structure towards resolution. And Professor Curry, I, well, I first of all appreciate that incredibly uh, nuanced and informative response. Uh, and I'm going to have to go back and listen to that a couple times just to see if <laughs> to, to better take it all in it's but, just because i taught trust me it's just because I, I taught this in my class a few weeks ago <laughs> oh yeah yeah uh, and then that, that's awesome uh, what, what class was that just out of curiosity uh, i teach a class here at uh, edinburgh called the philosophies of decolonization uh so what what i've what i've done is i've tried to give them um 
a, a, a genealogical tracing of certain motifs against humanism uh, that black scholars have have utilized. Like, what is the human? What is white humanism? What is Europe? What is European man? Uh, and we've gone all the way from people like Du Bois to Sylvia Winter, Winter to uh, Achille and Bimbe. So, you know, it's been a pretty, I've, I've enjoyed the class, actually. And Noon's one of the people that we've read uh, because it's specifically because of his arguments about revolutionary suicide. And so this is kind of related and also related to what you touched on previously, but we wanted to ask if you think the emphasis on emancipatory social theory, especially with respect to, to Black persons and Black men in particular, if it sometimes undercuts the need to come to terms with deeper, perhaps uh, insurmountable anti-Black structures that have created modernity um, as scholars like Frank B. Wilderson III in the Afro-pessimism tradition seem to suggest? Um, well, that's a really good question. So what? read the first part of the sentence again. Can you read the first part of the question again? Yeah, sorry, I was muted. <laughs> so if, oh, you yeah. think, if you think that emancipatory, emancipatory uh, social political theory for Black persons, Black men in particular, uh, sometimes undercuts the, needs to, the need to come to terms with those anti-Black structures that created modernity. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought you said. I was just trying to figure out what you, what, like, what do you consider emancipatory liberation theories or political good, theories? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a good question. And I didn't have any, um, anything particular in mind. In fact, I think, yeah, this is a question that, that Eli crafted. But if I was, <laughs> if, if I was, to, if I, if I was to, to pinpoint one, I would uh, maybe, I, actually, ones that, that maybe you'd, you'd have uh, quite a few things to say about, like I, I'm thinking about um, uh, theories of feminist liberation, and and the the role of a black feminist from Ruth Wilson Gilmore to Angela Davis, and I know uh, you've grappled with bell hooks quite a bit. So I'd yeah. maybe throw throw. I think she'd probably consider herself in the uh, tradition of um, that you know, uh, liberation tradition too. Uh, maybe yeah, also. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave it at that and just let you comment if you have anything. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think I think there's an optimism that undergirds both our Marxist analysis and our liberal political analysis. Right. So, you know, I appreciate some of the analyses that you're getting from, you know, radical black feminists who are looking at political account, economics, capitalism, et cetera. Um, but these things either depend on reform. Right. So I think when you look at the new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander's book, you know, she gives all this great sociological analysis. And then it's like, oh, but we should form a new movement, a protest so that white liberals could understand the the, the racial undercast. Right. Um, when you're looking at, you know, the change that you want to get in the abolition of the police state or about mass incarceration, these things still at some point have to make appeals to the values of the white people managing the oppressive racial system in the U.S. So we can give as many analyses about economics as we want, but, you know, economic change does not happen within a vacuum because somebody passes a law. These things are much more interconnected to the overall market forces, structures, and, and, and trading apparatus that nations and governments have. That being said, local, local action is just local action, right? Um, it gives you something, but it doesn't necessarily remedy a problem, right? Um, so if we're talking about emancipatory 
uh, liberation projects in that sense, right? That there's some form of optimism or social hope. Um, I think those things fail, right? I'm influenced by Derek Bell. You know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Karen, uh, Calvin Warren's work in this regard. Uh, I just don't think that that hope or uh, processes of recognition and mutual appeal to white power structures are going to save Black people anytime soon. I think history overwhelmingly demonstrates this as a fact. I think Frank B. Wotus's work is actually quite interesting. Um, I don't disagree with the conclusion. I think racism is permanent. Again, I get this just from race crits and like, I think the social science evidence on this is pretty convincing. Um, I'm not a big fan of the diagnosis that I that I think you get with Waterson um, because, you know, and I've, I've actually just written a paper about this. It's like, you know, when you're, Waterson seems to think that blackness um, is the basis of gratuitous violence because it's the slave. And I also, I'm not really, you know, I would disagree with the ontological category, but, you know, I'm, I get the point, right? Um, but I think that what ends up happening if you buy into Afro-pessimism uh, is that you can't make certain kind of distinctions that are necessary to understand social organization and hierarchy. For example, if you say blackness, mo you know, magnetizes bullets. Well, my question is going to be, well, what blackness? Because when you look at disproportionate rates of police killings, black men are the ones being shot by cops at overwhelming rates compared to black women. And people say, well, both of them are black bodies, both of them getting shot. Yeah, well, if you're looking at per 100,000, more white men get shot than black women and white women, right? So when you start actually breaking down the groups that get the most violence, they're always men. So the question becomes, well, how does that analysis become explained by something like, you know, Wilderson's account? Does blackness lead to, the, to, to magnetizing bullets for everybody that's black and these poor white people that have higher rates of, of police violence and, and shootings than, than some groups of black people? I think it's too reductionistic of a framework, right? I can't get the nuance in that lets me see groups in multiple ways. And that's largely because I'm more interested in social political analysis than ontological claims, right? So it's, it's you know, it's a difference. It's a difference in the, in the techniques of analyzing a problem. Um, but on the flip side, you know, I'm just kind of wondering what fills in the category of blackness, because as much as I think that anti-blackness is a, a particular and peculiar form of dehumanization, we have to admit there are other groups that have been dehumanized, right? Uh, when I look at the Holocaust or any other genocide, I mean, the, the things that are being done there are terrible. People become, you know, racialized or blackified, if you will, um, even with white skin, given some of the tropes that they put on them. So like, if you look at um, the, the, the sexual and predatory stereotypes that people had of Jewish men, uh, you'll find very, very similar uh, things that you that you have uh, towards black men, right? So these are very real types of things that exist and very real kind of um, negations that we find throughout history that I don't know can be reduced down to emancipatory liberation projects. Because there are very real obstacles, as you asked in the question, um, that prevent us from, from recognizing liberation or prevent us from even dealing with the loss of death that's right in front of our eyes. So if we're saying that there's some form of liberation that's possible, but we haven't even done the work to try to clear out the obstacles that prevent that, I just don't know what we're talking about. In other words, I don't know what it means to talk about abolishing the police state are uh, dealing with police brutality, and you don't have any kind of analysis of black masculinity outside of the fact that, well, they're privileged on the hand because they're men and they're vulnerable because they're race or because they're, they're blackness, right? Well, what's the humanity? What fills in the humanity? What fills in the worth for the existential crisis that black men suffer because of the eschatological impositions of death and bullets in American society? These questions don't have answers because they're not questions that are asked under certain kind of ideological frameworks. Even within feminist uh, theory um, that's 
trying to engage the carceral state, there's still the assumption that black men enjoy privilege. They've not moved their definition of patriarchy, which was, which was really solidified by white feminist literature, which suggests to us that patriarchy is an oppression of women. But when we go back and look at history, we see that the oppression of women is but one component of patriarchal violence, right? Because it also oppresses lesser men. So when people like Raywan Connell comes up in the 1980s, say, oh, look, men are oppressed by patriarchy, too. Um, you know, they're giving they're giving her all kind of bonnets and uh, name chairs, et cetera. But when black men for the last 20 years from the 60s to 70s were saying that this is how patriarchy operates, they were saying that they were effeminate, they were apatriarchal, and people were saying that they were the most violent groups of people in the world, right? Subcultural violence theorists were making this argument. So I think there's a need to supplant the ideology grounding are filling in the definitions of certain kinds of societal motivations like, like patriarchy, et cetera, or sexism, or even what we think patriarchal violence looks like. Now, the disproportionate rates of death that Black men suffer in practically all arenas of society suggests to us that patriarchy must be doing something um, to, to endanger them significantly more than other groups and their female counterpart. And those kinds of dynamics, I think, speak to what Wilderson's trying to get at. I just don't think Wilderson's work does the greatest job at trying to get to those disaggregated effects for certain populations, because he thinks that Blackness is an ontological status of the slave, rather than something that can be disaggregated and broken down to look at different effects and prevalences, uh, which I think matter to how we're actually trying to draw on things like policy or if we're trying to talk about um, solving our removing certain epistemic blinders, so to speak, that allow us to have more fruitful conversations towards revolution. And that's interesting because your response echoes, at least in part, I think Joy James's take on Afro-pessimism too, um, appreciative of the fact that the tradition recognizes the gravity of the situation and is skeptical of hope and liberation theory that isn't grounded and that sort of thing. Uh, although I, um, the, the nuances that, that you added, I don't think I've encountered before. I'm curious though, Professor Curry, if you think that material conditions and trying to alter those create counter institutions or trying to disassemble uh, various carceral and repressive institutions that have been bastions of white supremacy, whether it is police or even something uh, maybe more um, within the realm of possibility for those in academia, like getting police off campus, if you, th and not to be overly deterministic, but if you think that making some of those structural changes in, insofar as they're possible, right, and I think, I think it's probably within the realm of possibility that, uh, that some universities and college campuses faculty and students could uh, could put enough pressure on the institution to eliminate police there and maybe, you know, implement some kind of transformative justice program that, of course, is going to be circumscribed and everything else. But I'm wondering if you think those kinds of at least moderately transformative changes uh, make way for uh, more engagement with liberation theory, right? If, if that's going to open doors or if that's going to in, uh, um, inform some of the, the thinking that otherwise would have been precluded, if, if, you, if you kind of understand what I'm getting at, like is, is making those material changes insofar as they're possible and insofar as uh, one can, can challenge the, the state in all of its, uh, uh, you know, repressive anti-Blackness or is that the issue that the state and you know um, concentrated private power that works closely in conjunction with the state apparatus, if that renders 
most of those transformative efforts ineffectual to the degree that the liberation theory or you know liberatory theory uh just it it, it just doesn't register do you have any yeah. thoughts on that well i mean i do i mean i think this is actually a question that newton's trying to argue right because you know his argument at least in the mind is flesh is that changes in material structures in the world actually create different kinds of phantasms and consciousness in the mind so that was the way of saying that individual action that are that's actually trying to impress and 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 change material uh, society, right? Actual institutions, actual practices will create the kinds of consciousness you need to kind of overthrow the system. Um, whether or not I think that's true in this society, uh, given the mass amounts of misinformation in social media is a different question. Um, I don't think that we have the kinds of, I don't want to say ideological, but knowledge-based formulations of revolution. I think that in our social media age, ideas are proliferated based on likes and not about the materiality or connection they have to uh, actual social processes in the world. So I think it makes it very difficult to ascertain whether or not any ideas from an emancipatory, uh, emancipatory liberation strategy or politics uh, could actually take hold, right? So just as many people as you went over based on the oppression of, say, Black people and BLM, you have just as many people being won over by the propaganda coming out on certain websites, et cetera. Uh, so I don't know if you could get mass movement and mass mobilization in that way. Um, on top of that, I think that we have to admit exactly what Newton was saying in his essay on his dissertation, Ward Panthers. Um, part of the misinformation strategy that you're getting from the FBI, the CIA, et cetera, Facebook, um, is in line with making sure that you don't breed revolutionaries. And societal dissent never becomes a revolutionary force that could actually thread, much less overthrow the state. So the state has a benefit in keeping its population um, ignorant and, and committed to reform. So the Black academic, the elitist, the, the, the white liberal all have the same strategy. They go through the system because the system is what both preserves their status and disempowers people who are truly marginalized, that have no, that have no economic worth, that have no political voice, um, that have actually no hope um, for a change or transformation in the system because they're not the right bourgeois status to be recognized. Um, so I think probably I would side with the latter. I think that, you know, that systems and formulations are far too ingrained and have, have, have mobilized various forms of um, legitimization, be it through uh, social media, um, the media, various, you know, opinion makers, policy makers, et cetera, uh, to be overthrown by revolutionary movements or even the ideas that would start revolutionary movements in this society. Um, but I don't think that, you know, that means that it's going to exist forever. I think it's permanent within our lifetime and probably, you know, coexists with the, with the endurance of the nation. But, you know, I've said this multiple times, everything fails, everything falls, right? Nations uh, are born and they die. So upon the next epoch, whenever that may be, um, I think that's when you'll see the importance of certain ideas making it through. But until we get there, and until we're willing to accept that there's going to be an end of an epoch, uh, we don't really have much to work with because we're not really planning for new values. We're not articulating new strategies. We're not humanizing and filling in the kinds of gaps that Blackness has within the kind of ontological matrix that we now call humanism. Uh, what we're doing is we're appealing to systems that are both decadent and ineffectual to try to save Black lives when we know they only give us or produce Black death. So given the kind of uh, the de decadent and ineffectual systems in which we find ourselves, I want to turn back to end the interview to uh, a kind of the thread we've been going on the university itself. I was particularly thinking of the work of scholars such as Craig Stephen Wilder and his work Ebony and Ivy, Race, Class, and the Troubled History of American Universities. It seems like the American University itself has become formative of anti-Black racism and white supremacy. You, of course, 
have also uh, just examined this in your own work in Another White Man's Burden, Josiah Royce's quest for a philosophy of white racial empire, which again shows how prominent scholars and the disciplines themselves in the United States were heralds and defenders of white supremacism. Uh, given that, what role do you see for black male studies in institutions with such deep and pervading anti-black legacies? Do you see any reformist or even a fundamentally transformative role for uh, black male studies in higher education, especially in the United States? Or is it rather a site of resistance, one that is uh, content in the ruins of an unredeemable model of higher learning? Wow, um, maybe the latter, you know? Um... I don't see, and maybe this is because I'm pessimistic and I go through, you know, pure hell just presenting facts about black men and other racialized males throughout history. You know, I don't see, you know, institutions or disciplines kind of uptaking black male studies because it questions too much, right? It fundamentally questions the notions of patriarchy that you have. It fundamentally questions why, you know, even in feminist literature, why ideas that were solidified and created by racist white social sociologists like the subculture violence theory uh, is being cited by people like uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and Mapping the Margins on page 1266, right? Like these, the fact that you see such parallels between the work of bell hooks and you know feminism explaining masculine black masculinity as compensatory and violent and rape prone you know this should give a serious pause and it doesn't and black male studies is exactly a side of resistance because now you have people looking into the genealogy of ideas and looking into the kind of disciplinary apparatus and the sociological or the demographic underrepresentation of black men and boys and asking serious questions like why is it that black men and boys are the only group that are still referred to they are, are, are theorized as being in line with racist texts from the 1960s and 70s. I mean, you could literally pull, pull um, you know, pull Wolfgang and Farrakuti's book, The Subculture of Violence, and Miniature Amir's book, Patterns of Forceful Rape from 1971, and you basically have the explanations that you that were given as, as uh, definitions for Black masculinity in the United States. You know, these, these types of things happen. These types of things are constantly going on. And, you know, nobody is really pointing it out besides for black male studies scholars. And I think that when you have th these kinds of new in, you know, uh, interventions into disciplinary rhetorics and, 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 and scholarship, um, then inevitably there's a pushback, right? But the problem is, is that unlike many disciplines where uh, facts and evidence-based analysis is valued in the United States concerning race, that's not the case because so much of what we decide by race, um, our racial scholarship in the US is about identity. Is about which black group is the it has the favor of white liberals at the time, uh, and because of that, because of that model, the kind of historical and evidence-based uh, research that comes out as black male studies um, isn't is not only politically incompatible but methodologically so as well. Professor Curry, to close us out, I wanted to ask if you have any thoughts or anything that you'd want to say to aspiring scholars, be they inside the academy or, or out who are interested in black male studies, maybe this interview's piqued their interest and they want to learn more, but don't know where to begin. So maybe you have uh, some suggestions there. And then also, where can our listeners go to follow your work going forward? Uh, so the listeners could go to Twitter. Um, I'm at DRTJC, so at Dr. TJC. Uh, you know, I have a, a faculty page or, you know, professional page on Facebook they can tap into or if they Google me, they'll find my email. So I'm, I'm, I'm readily accessible just, you know, generally. Um, 
in terms of what I would say for people interested in black male studies, um, you know, we, we have a, a good amount of literature that's out now around black male studies as a paradigm and um, apparatus of, of, of analysis. Uh, I think, the, of course, The Man Not uh, is an important text. Um, just reading the history of black men and how they've been studied sociologically, uh, you know, books like uh, Robert Staples, you know, Black Masculinity. Uh, you can't look, you can't overlook, you know, Anthony Lamel's book on black sexual politics and and, and the black male. Uh, you know, of course, there's new works coming out all the time, you know, essays, you know, dealing with questions of intersectionality and it's black male problem. Uh, I think that these are the ways that, you know, uh, Tia Hassan's work on black male privilege, uh, he's been really popular uh, actually even doing um, webcasts on, on black male vulnerability, black men who are victims of uh, certain forms of abuse. Uh, Dr. Ronald Neal, you know, his work on eschatology, theology and, and black masculinity. You know, you, you, we have a growing community of, of scholars that are that are trying to uh, reinterpret and reimagine what black men and boys are, are, are uh, in the real world. And I think that that's um, kind of an invaluable form of um, of education and resistance given given what we're dealing with. So I would tell somebody that's interested in black male studies to, to certainly read The Man Not, uh, to follow some of these scholars, to start looking at some of the data and just ask real questions about why do you see comparable rates of domestic violence and intimate partner homicide in the black community, um, but no attention to male victims? Why do you see similar rates of sexual victimization between black men and black women within CDC data sets, but black men are never depicted as victims, right? The list goes on and on and on. Um, I think that if you look, give a evidence-based or empirically informed assessment and analysis of black men as a group, um, then there are gonna be questions that arise from that analysis. And I think black male study scholars give you one possible answer uh, to understanding where that's gonna go. Um, and of course, you know, you got to you got to read the work of Jim Sedanius, uh, his, his stuff on social dominance theory and the subordinate male target hypothesis. You know, I think all of these uh, works kind of ground an approach and perspective to to how we think of things more broadly. Professor Curry, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the NAB podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Professor Tommy Curry who gave us a great, another great interview, super eloquent and uh, having a, I just, you know, I really appreciate the kind of answers he gives us. Uh, James, one of the things I wanted to ask you and kind of uh, both focusing on the questions about race and black men and other marginalized communities, but also thinking just on a back, uh, kind of macro question about thinking about societal change. Um, I was interested in your thoughts of whether or not uh, a healthy splice of the kind of pessimism, realism that we talked about that is kind of a endemic to Curry's work would be helpful for other movements. You know, sometimes I, I find in my own thinking, for example, that there's a kind of push-pull that, especially for, you know, young people at universities, you want to support students getting excited about their ability to change society. But sometimes, of course, perennially, like with any students at any age, that can lead to overzealous energy and an kind of optimism. And I think as Curry really points out, there's also kind of dangerous blindnesses in the kind of rush to hope and fixings with the powers to be such as that they are. Um, so anyways, I, I was wondering your thoughts on that tension between kind of realistic pessimism. And by realism, I don't mean it's necessarily more true. I mean, as a kind of attitude towards the conditions in which we find ourselves. And, you know, more idealistic visions of revolutionary change that are at least supposed to coax people, even if they're idealistic visions of people who know them, know that they're, they're, they're a moving target. It's a tension that I'm still grappling with myself. And 
I'm not sure that I've come to any definitive conclusions, but it's such an easy question, James. I know, right? (laughs) What's wrong with me? I do have some ideas. You're familiar with the Gramsci quote, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will? Yeah, yes, yes. I think we've even talked about it before, I'm sure. I'm sure we probably have. And so that's, I've always appreciated that. It's always kind of resonated with me too. And I suppose with my approach to the way, to theory and practice, because that, because without that, that, necessary pessimism and i would emphasize the necessity of it as i think you know any even cursory look at professor curry's work for example will underscore um just how needed it is uh if not as a a corrective then at least as a revelatory lens that is going to put you in further theoretical contact with what you're up against (laughs) uh, to comprehend it that much more fully. In the same vein, or I suppose conversely, I think the the notion of praxis as I understand it, and I suppose in whatever small way try to embody it, a big part of that has to do with what somebody like John Dravakey would refer to as participatory knowledge. That is action to contest oppressive and repressive structures and systems and institutions reveals something about those structures that you're trying to change that otherwise you'd not you would not be privy to and you would thus otherwise not be able to theorize as accurately so it provides and professor curry i think rightfully so is very big on making evidence-based claims in relation to theoretical formulations and draws heavily, I think, from the sociological tradition and you know, is interested in empirical verification and data, quite frankly. And, and I think that's useful. And I think some of that actually comes from uh, in, engaging in while uh, what might not most accurately be categorized or classified as revolutionary activity because it's arguably not a revolutionary situation maybe that's the wrong level of abstraction or or a frame to be working with right because i think there's something to be said for organizing and mobilizing and seeing what changes are possible and even what degree it, it's possible to take on what often renders you most effective, you know, the repressive arm of the state or, or, or what have you, and, and, and see what vistas that, that opens up. Because, again, without doing that, then I think what, whatever theorizing you're trying, I mean, obviously, there's the, uh, there's the trite critique of the armchair theorist. Uh, and, and I think when you get to the evidence-based analysis that Professor Curry's advocating, you get beyond that for sure. Uh, but I would say to, to complement that, uh, it, it helps to, I mean, from a scholar's point of view, to be in touch with and to uh, pay attention to and to uh, study and research and perhaps to provide whatever uh, knowledge and even institutional resources you can to those who are engaged in the more uh, uh, practical, um, direct organizing and, and contestation of that which uh, we're trying to uh, theorize how to overcome. And so, I don't know, Eli, does 
is, is do you have a different approach or a different view yeah, in the matter? I'm, I'm just thinking of like uh, uh, read an article more about a, a concern about just like all the curry of like how deep and pervasive sometimes the kind of rush to action is that and I don't have an answer how the deal is that I'm just thinking about recently Crispin Startwell has a really interesting blog piece of like saying that um one of maybe perhaps the problem of the Obama years and his vision of social hope is that Obama really pushed a vision of political life as framing the right narrative um and that kind of uh you know, first, first it doesn't kind of, it kind of pushes against the evidence-based issue. It's more about kind of framing things in a heuristic. Second, it kind of makes it easy for someone like Trump to come up with an alternative narrative and make it just, you know, a complete uh, uh, facade of, you know, kind of myth-making. Um, but then third, it kind of rushes people, yes, the social hope helps kind of galvanize movement energy, but it also has this kind of coercive effect. I don't know, it turns a blind eye to certain situations that are uncomfortable because it makes it, uh, you know, it alleviates the tension a little bit. Um, obviously this is a, you know, an anxiety of critical theorists of that generation, but then again, it's easy to get into the passivity as a kind of response to that too. Uh, as an aside, interestingly, one of Sartwell, uh, you know, noted anarchist, anti-state theorist who's no lover of Biden, uh, uh, noted in that blog piece that was kind of a fun twist is that he thinks that perhaps one of the helpful things about Biden is he's not so good at making those grand narratives. So now we're stuck in, you know, a more complicated, messy political situation with someone who's not as adept at kind of creating a facade um, over the kind of stress situation we're in. Um, I would add to that, that I think uh, you know, I'm for sure a practice person. I'm for sure that, you know, making the communities and the practice of change how we live and adds a new perspective and depth to things. On the other hand, I definitely buy that there is, of course, especially for young people, you know, a desire to make change, but especially around issues when there's been real harm done, it's a kind of rush to alleviate. Obviously, there's some kind of white guilt about radical justice movements at some times. Like you want to quickly alleviate the situation so things are better. So, you know, you feel, because you feel empathy for people, you, you realize that you're in asymmetrical relationships too. But in the kind of rush to fix things, you can f further participate in the problems. Yeah, I think, you know, Foucault is another version of this. Um, uh, uh, I think we're, I sometimes have a problem with this kind of realist pessimist view. I, I don't think it's necessarily with Professor Curry, but just like if you kind of, uh, maximize it beyond particular individuals. It's, it's, it is easy to get into a kind of passive, I don't want to necessarily call it armchair position, but uh, that you kind of take too much distance from the perennial struggles of society. And, you know, what are you to do, but kind of uh, with Heidegger, you know, wait for a new prophet or God or something to emerge, a, an event to help us some sort of messianic framework until the next epoch shifts and you have some kind of available opportunities. Uh, this is all to say a very long way to say, I don't really have a good answer, but I see the concerns in the situation and the kind of depth in them. And I think sometimes, uh, especially in the left, they're very easily overlooked. Uh, and just as a, a kind of third messy part is there's a whole really interesting generation of um, Marxist scholars and neo-Kantians that uh, will, uh, actually picked this up from neo-Marxists that are thinking about the question of whether or not for the kind of dialectic to unfold and for the pro proletariat to really organize, you need a kind of founding myth. Um, 
This is also used by the Nazis to great effect in a kind of very different sense. And part of their position is like, well, to root social change, we need a strong sense of social hope and an imaginary about the kind of inevitable change that's going to happen. But it's so easy for that to slide into fanaticism and to just get instrumentally manipulated in such, a, you know, I think especially in our social media saturated culture with already kind of effective habits in place. Like, in other words, I think this is partially what's happening, you know, with Trump and the, the you know, the, the claims of voter fraud. Like, the issue is that we're so used to saturated visions of kind of the, the social hope and the society we want, and it's so narrative-driven, and social media kind of so reinforces that in us, that uh, it's not just like that it's a cult, but it's like uh, the facts are secondary to this kind of drive to the, the reform vision we want, which I think is making you know, allows people who identify with the kind of Trumpism movement that, to make all sorts of incoherent claims uh, that it doesn't really matter if they're incoherent or not, because it's that, that drive to make the narrative work. Uh, I, again, to repeat how complicated and uh, tenuous I think the situation is. I had a few things to say about the role of, of narrative because on the one hand, I think you're you're right to point to the the dangers of myth making, and how you know, the or the necessity. By the way, I think like part yes, of that group yeah. I was saying is like like the tension is is even people like Hans Blumenberg say, well, you can't really have a, a political revolution without one. That's the the issue that they're trying to navigate. Right. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I was... reform and hope and a new society. Like they're not convinced you can do it without it. And so that puts us in a kind of precarious position. Yeah, that's, I'm glad you clarified that. that that's what I was um, arriving to as well, because I, I, I'm doubtful that, that you can have um, excess, a successful transformative movement without some kind of narrative or storytelling. And you know, that, that speaks to the, you know, the symbolic potential of narrative and its ability to invoke deep ingrained practices and kind of to communicate, distill and communicate those in ways that are really compelling for one thing. But the, I guess the one point that I was going to add is that much of that obviously is remaining at the level of, of discourse, not that you know, various actions can't inform you know, narrative practices and, and what have you. But I, I, I think there's also among what Joy James, who I mentioned in the interview, is referred to as the academic class, and you know, we on the podcast before, like when we had Elizabeth Anderson on, and I think I've uh, reiterated this, it, it, there is a, a critique of the more privileged portion of the professoriate as being part of the professional managerial class and embodying the ideas and um, ideology that tends to characterize those in that kind of class position who also tend to come from a particular class background. Uh, and one of those things I would say, by the way, that uh, David Graeber points out in, in a piece that you and I both uh, looked at, the late David Graeber, he, he wrote about uh, being excommunicated from Yale and from all uh, major uh, institutions in the United States, which is why he went across the pond for work. Uh, when, uh, as as a professor th there at Yale, he got into trouble for um, engaging in radical politics and and essentially uh, just was not 
rehired um, and it wasn't actually a tenure case, even though that's often the way that it was framed. But one of the things that, that he mentions there too in, in his indictment of the classism within the academy uh, is that there's not much of a sense of solidarity among the academic class. And in my experience, that, that's, that's been borne out. There are, of course, exceptions. And, and I think that's telling too, uh, because what I was getting at is the reluctance among academics uh, to commit or even to endorse actions that they view as too radical, which it turns out is most any efforts that don't come from or aren't directed by them. And so, and again, there are exceptions, but I would say that's the unfortunate general um, general rule. And then I was thinking too about efforts within the academy and, and, and out, and I would say within the university, sometimes these programs are co-opted by the institution itself and become very top-down and more um, like part of the an extension of the uh, nonprofit charitable industrial complex, but sometimes it's very student driven, student and faculty driven. Uh, that is efforts to meet people's material needs and to practice mutual aid and to engage in some kind of community building, albeit often cloistered. But I was thinking also about how and and even those sorts of actions will be condemned by many in the academic class, or at least I've, I've seen it happen. Uh, sometimes they're, they're embraced, but oftentimes only embraced insofar as they remain cloistered and don't represent uh, any kind of serious threat to the power structure. And in that way, I think they sometimes reinforce the problem. And this is what I was getting at too, and I, where I think the kind of uh, critical pessimism can throw light on uh, some of the uh, issues raised by conducting some of these radical experiments and the degree to which they might reinforce the kind of um, the kind of hierarchical relationship um, that Freire, Paulo Freire referred to as a kind of false generosity and or how they just, you know, pick up the slack uh, that has been left in the wake of the remnants of the welfare state and uh, in the neoliberal commodified university, what's now unavailable to, to folks, uh, and 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 in that way allow those allow that system to just keep churning on in its super exploitative uh, fashion, rendering more and more people disposable. Uh, but no, and so I think there's a tension there as well. But that doesn't mean that I think that those efforts are, are worthless. In fact, quite the contrary. I think it, it behooves us to kind of start with those concrete problems, uh, getting a little um, Elizabeth and Anderson, uh, her sort of pragmatist approach, and trying to identify those problems. And then also, uh, you know, uh, engaging in the onion layer peeling that is part of the whole Frarian critical pedagogy project it can be done in, in various ways, right? And it doesn't have to take like, a, I don't think a, um, the, it doesn't require a formal educational setting to do this either. Um, although I, I, I'm not um, convinced that it can't happen in a formal educational setting. I think sometimes it's much more difficult, but nevertheless, unpacking those problems. And then at the same time, 
uh, you know, thinking, well, all right, what, what avenues are available to us here, given those structural constraints, right? What, uh, you know, thinking about it sort of is a, um, a chess game, right? Or thinking about the, the chess board or the checker board. I was much better at checkers than I was at chess as a lad. Right? And so thinking about like, what moves can you make, right? And then as you're making those moves, um, or as or as others that you're working in solidarity with, with maybe you're in, in a role where you are you and maybe you're working with students, for example, in a higher education setting and you're studying what others are doing uh, in, in challenging various forms of concentrated power. Maybe it's, for example, we're going to be talking to Professor Ellen Reese, uh, UCR professor, uh, professor at UC uh, Riverside, where I teach sometimes when I get classes a sociologist who just co-edited a book about Amazon and the role that Amazon's played in reshaping the Inland Empire's political economy and the contributions that the company has made to the deterioration of the environment and um, the uh, air quality, the awful air quality in the area, right? And so, and one of the things that, that Ellen did, and we're going to uh, talk about, I think, on the next podcast, fingers crossed, is uh, you know working with students to survey folks who were working in Amazon warehouses, some of whom were engaged in various kinds of resistance, or at least thinking about it. And, and so, if you're doing that kind of work, right, you're 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 looking at folks who are trying to address a concrete problem from where they are, and I think that's also sort of what Newton was getting at with his intercommunalist praxis, at which is, you know, he, he encountered some pushback in the black community, uh, the Panthers did, when uh, they offered to send troops to uh, support the uh, National Liberation Front in Vietnam. And people are like, well, why are you sending folks there at, when we have a war going on in our own community? And, you know, he tried to understand this as part of a contradiction. And one of the things the Panthers often tried to do would be to in intensify contradictions in ways that uh, open the door for perhaps uh, greater liberation. And so uh, with this intercommunalism theory, his, his idea, I, I think, is that, you know, with, since we are now dispersed into these uh, reactionary communities, to reshape them kind of at the local level, right? But in some kind of relationship with all those other global communities who are also subject to the same uh, empire. And, and, and one thing that I, I, I want to add before, I guess, I guess wrapping up and then I'll, then I'll let you uh, comment on whatever piqued your interest from what I just said, but I, I've heard some suggest that white supremacy might not be globally hegemonic anymore. And at first I was like, well, I wanted to kind of dismiss it outright because it certainly still seems to hold sway, right? And there's no, and obviously if the, the United States still probably the reigning hegemon, albeit one in decline, or at least, you know, the most violent superpower, in the world right now, and anti-blackness pervades United States politics and culture and society, and I think that kind of sets the tone because the United States, militarily and 
economically, financially, and and politically, right, exerts a, a lot of coercive influence globally. And you know, I, I, and of course, in the 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 wake of colonialism and decolonization and neo-colonialism and forms of neo-imperialism, I, I think um, a lot of that is is still tied to some semblance of what we would consider white supremacy. But I think in suggesting that maybe it doesn't have the same kind of stronghold, uh, that that's kind of interesting, right? Because then in, in, in what ways and for what reasons has uh, that... Um, has has that thoroughgoing power been reduced and 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 what kind of things can come out of that like is 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 there more room for um various kinds of radicalism and by the way radicalism is always radical in relation to to what right and a status quo status quo that at least hitherto has been uh defined by white supremacy and, and anti-blackness and so um, I, I think that's an interesting question to think about, and uh, and and also I think provides the proper impetus to think globally, and that's something that I'm gonna I, I continue to to work through, right? That's one of the reasons I invoked Newton and the intercommunalism theory is because uh, I, I think the 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 emphasis has to be kind of on the ground where you are locally, but it also has to be transnational in some respects. Um, other, otherwise, it, it, uh, well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think struggles are nearly as successful, and I don't think any struggle to fundamentally change the structures that define the capitalist world economy and the modern world system are going to uh, be very amenable to transformation if there isn't that kind of. Uh, global solidarity, and there's all talk about like you know a, a a new international and that sort of thing. I don't know what exactly the right kind of framework um, is to, to to be thinking about waging global struggle, but I think it's something that we do need to be thinking about. And we and I think if that is a serious subject or object of contemplation, then you have to bring to the table that kind of critical pessimism that is going to pull no punches in the way that it uh, unpacks the very real impediments, not just to liberation, but even to survival at the moment. Uh, I'll just add so that we can wrap up here. Obviously a lot there as usual with the the kind of big questions I ask you, your big thoughts at the end. Um, uh, What was I gonna say? Two things. One is, I, I think the question, of course, as you know, as the, uh, Professor Curry pointed out to, is complicated because it depends what you mean by black. Do you mean an ontological category or you, do you mean, I think there's a lot to unpack in that question of just whether how dominant it is, because certainly colorism is still alive and it's dominant in Europe and it's dominant to the kind of framings of uh, uh, African identity or in Southeast Asia, where I've done a lot of work and Certainly, if we're talking about the kind of, uh, 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 you know, uh, manipulation and coercion and racial attitudes towards dark-skinned peoples, including even especially in Africa, especially with uh, Chinese colonialism there on top of the U.S. and other countries, I think it's a, a pretty complex story. For another time, I'll just end with, you know, I think one interesting kind of alternative to this kind of myth idealism versus kind of realism pessimism is 
I think part of Dewey's own commitment for sure was if you could make a myth out of an evidence-based practice, that if we kind of turned our values and hopes and visions on the kind of slow, plodding, ameliorative, reconstructive work, even if it's quite intense at times, you know, what some would call revolutionary, uh, that that itself could be a kind of newfounding myth for us, what we do communally together as a democratic way of life. A little, little de-democracy is even a, a little deceptive of how kind of big in scope he's thinking. If we if we if we put our kind of revelatory focus not on one particular final outcome, but on the value of our ability to do successful inquiry itself, uh, something to discuss in future interviews. And with that, I'm going to close this out. Thank you for listening to the NAB podcast. We look forward to you listening in to our next episode. Uh, thanks for stopping by.